Let's thank God for this time. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this Lord's Day to fellowship together. We thank you now for the history of what you've been doing in the world through your church and through different uh, fathers in the faith and through different believers and Christians throughout the ages. We pray as we consider some of those today that you might encourage our faith, strengthen us for the task at hand that you've for the time and place that you have placed us. And going forward, continue to build and sanctify your church. For Jesus' sake, amen. Well, this uh, lecture today was originally supposed to be about Christopher Columbus and Hernando Cortez. But as I was putting these things together, after reading a lot of different things and... Enjoying myself too much. Uh, it turned into two, two separate lessons. So one on Columbus today, and then next time, uh, next church history class, we'll look at Hernando Cortez. Um, those are the two of the most prominent explorers of the New World in that era of the late 1400s into the early 1500s, and their discover, discoveries and explorations and conquering of the New World for Spain. Um, So because this turned into something that it wasn't originally supposed to be, it might seem to be a bit scatterbrained, and that's because it is. So I hope it's still helpful to you uh, hearing about Columbus. But just about a word about the both of these guys, uh, the both of these fellas, Christopher Columbus and Hernando Cortez, Um, They are two legendary figures famous for their explorations, conquests of the New World, who today, like so many figures we've talked about, but particularly these guys, have fallen under incredible scrutiny in our modern day by modern historians and people who just gobble that up, and of course the way the public schools teach on Christopher Columbus and um, they don't even teach on Cortez anymore, really, that I know of, unless it's to criticize him for destroying uh, the indigenous culture of the people of Mexico. But being the case that we kind of know Columbus and his basic story, we know Cortez and his basic story, uh, I, I don't want to spend, and the fact that we're focusing on church history or Christian history, and the fact that these guys' reputations have fallen into repute. I don't want to spend as much time today and next time detailing the specific timelines and the details of their lives and events, as really what I want to do is rescue or attempt to rescue them from modern disgrace. And so in doing that, I say up front, I don't want to commit hagiography where I paint them in a better light than uh, is true. However, I am going to be just simply laying before you all the good parts of them that are never told today. And so it may seem like I'm doing that, but it's just because I'm trying to balance out the scales and show you the things, the parts about them that are lost or intentionally forgotten or intentionally lied about even and slandered in our day. In many ways, this portion of history and this lecture is a continuation of the era of the Crusaders and 
the lecture I gave on that a few weeks ago, a few months ago, as you will see. While, so while we consider Columbus and then in a few weeks Cortez, while neither of these guys were theologians, they were not pastors, they were not um, deacons or churchmen in, in, in that proper sense, they did not battle battles against heresy in the church, in the academic sphere, or from the pulpits, or in writing pamphlets or books or things like that. Uh, that's not where their battles were or their lives were spent. Um, nevertheless, we find from their lives that these were men shaped by the church of their time. So they're not church fathers, they're not reformers, they're not pastors or theologians of church history, but they are significant, monumentally significant men in history who were undeniably shaped and formed by the church of their day and were very vocally in their writings that we have today uh, Christian shaped by the church of their day and by the world at their time. And their lives, their actions reflect the reality and the significance of the church in the world at the time of which they were a part of Christendom and really some of the last uh, stages of Christendom. Um, so, keep that in mind as we consider Columbus and Cortez. They were not pastors, they were not theologians, they were not thus polished men. They, they were rough men uh, for, their, for our day, they were rough men. Uh, in their time, they were great men. And so, the world, while the world that we live in today is very, very different from the world that Columbus and Cortez lived in. That's something that we have to remember and historians and students of history have to remember is that our world today, the way we think about our world is so different than they thought of it back then and the way it was back then. And so to understand men like this, we have to understand their world or to the best we can understand the world in which they were raised and shaped by and were thrust into and were a part of. And so while our world today is quite different from the world of Columbus and Cortez, I think we'll also find that it's not altogether completely different. The rich history of America that we have today, that we are spoiling today, uh, owes much, particularly to Columbus. And there is much more to learn from these men today than we might initially think. So while... I will attempt to guide us along the track of their lives and tell their stories and rescue their reputations from ill repute. I will do that by simply spending most of the time or a significant portion of our time simply quoting them in their own words, things that they wrote in their own journals or that their fellow uh, captains and men with them wrote about them as they watched their lives and chronicled their lives. So that's what I'm going to do is give them back the voice that has been robbed from them by modern historians, which, as you, I'm sure, are well aware of, the problem of so many modern historians is that it's not just that they fail to do history correctly and read full context and all those things, but they are not without bias. They are biased against men like Columbus and Cortez because of the fact that they are biased against the Christian faith. And that should tell us the fact 
when you look at history and you look at who modern historians criticize the most, that should give you a clue. These guys might actually be good guys of history, even though we're told the opposite. Uh, so look into it some more. Read some more. So that's what uh, we'll do with Columbus and Cortez. Again, at the outset, let us note that Columbus and Cortez, they were Catholic Christians at their time. We could call them Roman Catholics. That is the church they were brought up in. That is the church of their time. They were Catholic Christians. They were explorers who spent mo- much of their adult lives away from Spain, away from Europe, off of that continent, in the islands of the New World, in Mexico, things like that. And so they, were, they spent their adult lives away from the disputes of the church that began to happen in the early 1500s with the Reformation. So their faith reflects the time in which they lived, which for Columbus was right before the Reformation, right before the dawn of the Reformation. He died uh, before 1517, before the Reformation began. So Columbus, when we consider him and his faith, we can't view him as a Roman Catholic who was decidedly anti-Protestant because he simply did not live to see the light of those debates and those disputes. And he was not involved in that world. Cortez was on the other side of the planet when those things began to take place. And so they were not involved, so they were not decidedly for or against the cause of the Protestant Reformation. They were simply Catholics of their time. So keep that in mind as we consider their Christian faith and the way that they all read things that sound very Roman Catholic from their own words, because they were. Um, And yet that doesn't mean that they are unbelievers. As we've mentioned in various lectures throughout this first half of church history, um, up until things like the Council of Trent and up until the Reformation, there were good and faithful Christians within the established Catholic Church and within the established Eastern Church um, who believed and trusted in Jesus despite the errors that were developing and growing and happening. And so guys like Columbus and Cortez are exactly the type of men that I believe were held a sincere faith in Jesus in the time and context in which they lived, despite the fact of being within the Roman Catholic Church, very close to the beginning of the Reformation. But since I'm unable to judge their souls, you all may have a more uh, strict outlook than me, I guess, on that. So I'll let you decide what you think from their own lives and words as we look at them today. But I would ask you to do that, and to do so, keeping in mind that these, again, were not ivory tower theologians. They were not pastors, but they were rough seamen. They were extremely masculine fighters who fought literal battles, who traversed the ocean, all kinds of things, conquered a rough and dangerous world. So we'll find the polish might be lacking uh, in these men. And that's really what makes them great, is, is the fact that they were not polished. That is the case with many heroes, many great men of a world gone by. All great men of history, kings, explorers, warriors, had their flaws. And that's what made them great. These men certainly would feel out of place in our PC world today. They would just, they would not, 
be in place in this world today. But at the same, in the same way, the men, even the best of men in today's modern world, ourselves simply would not stand a chance in their world either. And so God used them in their time and place in history, knowing it would take men of their time to accomplish the great things they did. And today we ought not to be discouraged because God will use good men of today to do the things that need to be done today. So, with that said, let's cut to the chase. You've heard it said in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Learned that all the way back in kindergarten, first grade, whenever it was. And it's true, he did in 1492, sail the ocean blue. And he did so after years of trying to get someone, different, uh, different nations or kings to sponsor him, provide him a ship and a crew and funds to go and explore what he thought, of course, was a route around the globe to the Orient, to the Indies, um, which would result, he believed, in great wealth and riches. However, people thought he was crazy. They didn't want to take the costs. They didn't believe he could do it. And it wasn't until he had a hearing with the king and queen of Spain, King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella, Main, the main driver of this quest was Queen Isabella. She really pushed this to make it happen. And they sponsored. So he sailed the ocean blue under the banner of the king and queen of Spain. He was not a Spaniard. He was very likely Italian, though there are lots of really fun conspiracy theories about the origins of Columbus that he may have been like a Jew or something. Uh, but the received history is that he was an Italian. <laughs> Sailing under the banner of Spain, which that's true. They sponsored him, gave him the the three famous ships, the Nina Pinta and the Santa Maria, and the crew and the funds to go. Of course, he made great deals with the king and queen of Spain. He he drove a hard bargain with them. He demanded a certain percentage of the gold, uh, those sorts of things. uh, And he required that he be given the title Admiral of the Sea, which is quite hilarious. uh, But they did say, all right, fine, we'll call you the Admiral of the Sea. And so they did. And so that's what he was called, the Admiral. Columbus was born. uh, Of course, we know the story. He does see land. It was a tough, long journey. Barely escaped mutiny from his crew, who time was running out. He had greatly underestimated the size of the ocean. And they thought, we're lost out at sea. We're going to turn on our captain. But he was able to uh, maintain leadership and control just in time to see land in the new world, which they did, which were the islands of the Caribbean. As we know, many trials, many tribulations, many dangers and life-threatening situations on the sea and in the process of going to these different islands and meeting the people and those things. But throughout all of that, they found gold. They began to establish colonies for Spain, for Christendom in the new world. And so it was a great, great success. Columbus was born, backtracking, in 1451. He was born in 1451. And as a young man, he began his career as a sailor. And it's believed that he engaged in sea battles against Muslim Barbary pirates. Um, And so he came out of a world off the tails of the Crusades and there were still many battles against the Islamic Muslim world and Christendom. 
uh, during that time. In fact, the king and queen of Spain had just defeated uh, the Turks in a great battle of Christopher Columbus's day. And so he engaged in sea battles against the Muslim pirates. And in 1476, at the age of 25 or thereabouts, he was aboard a ship. This is before his sails to the New World, of course. He was aboard a ship that caught fire in battle and sank. He was thrown overboard. And while flailing for his life in the ocean, he found a floating oar of all things. You know, you wouldn't think that would really carry you, but it did miraculously was able to make his way to shore. This is off the coast of Portugal, and he survived what should have ended his life. And from that moment on, he began to see and really believe in his inner man that God's hand was upon him. When you read Columbus's writings, it may seem like he's got a very inflated view of himself or a great ego. And the fact is a lot of great men just have great egos, and that's a fact of history. But the fact is he saw God's providence in saving his life in events like this and others throughout his life where he said, God must have a great plan for my life because I should have been dead. And so that's what he began to believe from this event onward. And other people saw that in his life as well, that God must have something for Columbus to spare his life the many times that he did and the amazing ways that he did. But after this event in 1476, he settled down for a while and established a business as a map maker. So he was a map maker uh, for a time. And... Of course, as he was engaged in this business through his studies, this is when he began to have a vision for expedition across the sea because it was in his map-making career through studying, learning, reading, all kinds of things as a map-maker, Columbus began to be convinced that the earth was a globe, that it wasn't flat. So, uh, flat earther's biggest L in Columbus, as much as I want to believe uh, Columbus, he believed the earth was a globe and kind of proved it. And he began to believe that the best route, because it was a globe, the best route to the Orient, to the Indies, was to sail around it instead of, at the time, the route they took was down the coast of Africa, the southern tip, and all the way up and around. He thought, by his estimations, his reading, his studying, you could just go around, and it would be a much shorter, direct route to the uh, Orient, to the Indies. Um, that's why, of course, you probably were taught the Native Americans in this Western Hemisphere are called Indians. Columbus Willie was in the Indies, but uh, alas, he was not. Um, and so he read ancient, in all his studies, he would read ancient geographers, he read the Bible. He knew the Bible very well, even though he interpreted it wrong on many occasions. Uh, he read the apocryphal books, uh, particularly of Esdras, the, which is, you know, of course, the Catholic Church received some apocryphal literature. So he did. The book of Esdras specifically speaks about the, um, the globe and the way it was constructed and the continents and the water. It's wrong about it, <laughs> but that gave him the idea that it was a globe. But he wrongly estimated the size of it off of Esdras. He read many church fathers, many philosophers of, of the ancient world, and of course other explorers like Marco Polo, 
who was recent to his day, who navigated the world, and, of course, our beloved St. Brendan. He read St. Brendan's Navigations and even visited up in kind of that northern part of the world before making his expeditions. So without having any formal education, he was a very studied and well-read man and knew sources very, very well and came to brilliant conclusions. He was, even though he was wrong on a lot of his calculations, he was proven to be right on a lot of things that he, he believed to be true that was not the commonly received geography or science or things of his day. And so he was an amazing, studied, smart, intelligent man in that regard. And so um, it's fascinating. I, I don't have the details before me. and won't spend the time. But if you read in books, the way he came to his conclusions, it's legitimate, amazing calculations uh, of how he determined the world's globe and how he determined the size of it. Now, there are various reasons why his calculations of the size of the ocean and the globe were off. But, again, as I've said, he greatly underestimated the size of the ocean and thus underestimated the distance to the Orient so much, obviously, that he was unaware that there was an entire continent between Europe and the Orient in the middle of the ocean to the west. But he discovered that. (laughs) So Columbus was... And I will say, though Columbus discovered, wow, there's another world, islands, continents here, the whole time he thought, I'm just a few islands away from the Orient. He thought he was right there, and he never got to find out the truth and and continue to go. But he didn't even realize how much more farther he had to go, even unto his death. Uh, But all to say, Columbus was a very studied man in all things relating to his calling to the sea, and geography. He learned things from the Bible when the Psalms speak about the, the wind patterns of the sea. He would read and take those things to heart, and he knew the tracks of the ocean and thus was able to have a to and from return track across and back, uh, across and back the Atlantic multiple times, which had not been done much or in, in up to his modern day. That was an amazing feat which his smarts and studying and studying of the Bible helped him to accomplish. And uh, it's an amazing thing if you go read the details on that. Uh, but here's another example. I'll give you one, one short story, one anecdote of how he was a very smart guy and he used it to his advantage to save his life in funny ways on multiple occasions. On one occasion in the New World, on one of the islands, his crew... Uh, I forget the exact occasion of what exactly was going on, but they needed desperate help from the islanders, from the Caribbeans. They needed their help in some way, and they weren't. The natives weren't cooperating. They were a threat to them on this particular occasions. On this particular occasion, and at the, on this occasion, Columbus concluded from his books and his study of geography and the stars and the planets that a solar eclipse was coming at a particular time. And he used this, and he told the natives, a solar uh, eclipse is coming at this time, and he used this as a threat that God would be angry with them if they didn't help the Spaniards. And thankfully for his sake, he was exactly correct on the calculations. The solar eclipse happened. The natives were just like awestruck. They thought he was a god. 
and they, you know, helped him in any way they could. So um, he used his smarts <laughs> to save his life and the life of his crew many times, and that's one one such story of his of his in- incredible learning. Um, I want to talk a moment about his cru- his crusading vision very briefly. This is an overlooked part of Columbus's vision for sailing across the ocean. It wasn't simply a business endeavor to make a lot of money and find gold and natural resources and a, and a better route to the Indies. Yeah, that was part of it, but that really was not the main, main thing. There were multiple reasons within Columbus as to why he had this drive. It, was, it wasn't just a business endeavor. It was a calling upon his life to find this path to uh, the Orient in his mind. And one of, the, one of the motivations deep in his heart is the fact that he was greatly influenced by, as I mentioned a moment ago, the dying world of the Crusades. That, was, that era was coming to an end, and yet there was still lots of conflict with the Turkish world. Up to his day, there were still many battles between the Turks and the Europeans. But Columbus had this desire, being a man of his time, of that previous era, he desired to see Jerusalem delivered from the hands of the Turks. It was still in Muslim hands, and he wanted to see Jerusalem and the Holy Sepulchre, the burial place of Christ, out of Muslim hands into the possession of Christendom once again, and for Spain. And so Columbus, in his studies, believed that if he found this route around the globe, he could find a back passage to flank the Muslims in the Middle East. And so part of this, and this, of course, he kept more quiet, which is probably why you don't hear so much about it, but it's clearly written in his, in his writings. He, he believed he could go around, find a back route to flank the Muslims, defeat them in battle, and deliver Jerusalem and the burial of Christ, the burial place of Christ, into the hands of Christendom once again. And so Columbus himself desired to actually lead a crusade himself. He wanted to lead a crusade. He never got to do that. Of course, never found that back route. It wasn't what he thought. But that was his desire. And so that was a major motivating factor. That's why through many failures, many troubles and trials, he continued to press ahead, continued to try and find a way because he had these deeper religious motivations beyond just gold and glory. And so that was one such vision. The other, the other such religious vision of Columbus, you know, today people, they simplify Columbus. Really, they project themselves upon Columbus of what they would be like if they were in Columbus's shoes, and thus they accuse him of just wanting gold and glory. Because the modern people who do that, they are secularists, they're irreligious people, they have no religious commitment. So they think, how could he have a, how could someone else be so committed to their religion to do great things like this when I know if it was me, I would just want the gold and the glory. And so because they can't imagine it, they think, well, then he couldn't. And that's just very unfair, very simplifying, and very factually untrue if we take Columbus at his own words um, instead of, making up hidden motivations in his heart that were never seen or never written or spoken of by him. 
And so one of the great motivating factors of Columbus was that his vision was a distinctly Christian vision for his explorations, not only for the crusading purpose, but he wanted to take the gospel to all the people on the islands along the way. Originally, he thought this was the Indies and these princes that we don't have a strong relationship with. There's more that we have not established trade with. He wanted to go establish trade and establish the Christian religion and see them converted to the Christian faith. But there's an interesting old story of church history that really begins this deeply Christian conviction of Columbus. And that has to do with the story of his namesake, Christopher. There, there's, a, there's a legend, and it is a legend. It's not even portrayed by the Catholic Church as fact. It's a legend. Of, so it's a, a fun story and nothing more of church history that there was a man named St. Christopher. And this was the St. Christopher who Columbus was named after. His name, before he was named St. Christopher, was Odessa. I can't remember if he was a king or not, but Odessa was a great man. I think it was Odessa, something like that. No, it was Ophorus, not Odessa. Ophorus. Ophorus, in this legend of Ophorus, he wanted to find the greatest man in all the world and serve that man. And so this legend has all kinds of stories of him meeting different men. He even meets the devil himself and finds, well, there's a Christ who, at his name, the devil has no power. So you, devil, can't be the greatest king so i'm not going to serve you so he goes in search of this christ that is spoken of and he comes across in the legend this monk and he begins to ask him where i can find this great king called christ that i can because i want to serve the greatest king in all the world and so this monk tells him go down to this river and there's this great mighty river and you're a great strong man offer us you're one of the greatest warriors of the day there are many poor weak people who try to cross this river and cannot. You need to go down there and help them cross this river, and there you will find the Christ. So he goes, and he's there for days, looking for this great king, the Christ. And while he's there, there's this young little boy who comes up to him and uh, wants to be taken across the river. So he says, okay. So he puts this young boy on his shoulders and begins to walk across this river But as it gets deeper and deeper, the river gets stronger and stronger, and the boy begins to feel heavy and heavier and weigh him down as if he's afraid he's going to be just crumble under the weight of this boy. He says it feels as if the weight of the world was on his shoulders. But barely, amazingly, by the skin of his teeth, makes it across the river, and it's there that he discovers, this is the funny thing of Catholic legend like this, that this was the Christ child that he <laughs> carried across his shoulders. And thus he is renamed St. Christopher, the name Christopher meaning the Christ bearer, because he bore Christ across the water. And there he found the greatest king who he would serve the rest of his life, the child. And so that is who Christopher Columbus was named after. This was a very beloved legend of of church history back in that day. And so Columbus was very serious about his namesake. And so in his desire to sail across the waters to what he believed at first was the Indies, the Orient, um, that's what he believed was his calling. That's why he was named that he believed, because it was going to be his job. God had providentially ordained and preserved his life 
to carry and be the Christ bearer, bringing the gospel of Christ across the waters of the Atlantic to what would be the new world, to the Indies, to the peoples that were lost in darkness. That was a massive driving motivation, a driving factor of Columbus. And you can choose to say, yeah, I don't believe that at all. No way. He just wanted the gold. The fact is, in his journals, over and over and over again, he wrote back to the king and queen of Spain, back to whoever he was writing and journaling to in historical records, reminding the readers of this that this was his desire. And when they met the people, the natives, and they began to interact with them, he was so excited and believed these people could be easily converted for various reasons he talked about. And so this was not a small thing. This was a major driving factor of Columbus was to carry, be the Christ bearer. That was his calling, he believed, to carry Christ across the waters to the peoples in far off islands. And the fact is, that's exactly what happened. That's exactly what God used his life with all its with all his faults and flaws and his mistakes and sins. That's what God ended up doing through Christopher Columbus. I wanna so I said I was gonna quote a lot of things from and I haven't really done that yet, so now I'm gonna do that. Here are some pieces of what Columbus wrote in his own journals and his own letters to show you the things I've been telling you. In his first letter, as they began his first voyage, 1492, his first letter on the voyage that he was writing to go back to the king and queen of Spain, uh, he, he begins his letter with this introduction saying, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, king and queen. So, so, He begins his letter in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Later in the letter, Columbus writes of his mission, saying this, quote, this is the words of Columbus in his journals, in his letter. And your highnesses, as Catholic Christians and princes, devoted to the holy Christian faith and the propagators thereof, and enemies of the sect of Muhammad and of all idolatries and heresies, you resolve to send me, Christopher Columbus, to the said regions of India, to see the said princes and peoples and lands and the disposition of them all and the manner in which may be undertaken to their conversion to our holy faith and ordained that I should not go by land to the Orient but by the route of the Occident which no one, by which no one to this day knows for sure that anyone has gone, end quote. Throughout his journals, Columbus writes often about this goal of converting the natives. He says this in one place, quote, In order that they might develop a friendly disposition toward us, speaking of his relationship with the natives, because I knew that they were a people who could better be freed and converted to our holy faith by love than by force, gave to some of them red caps and to others glass beads, which they hung on their necks, and many other things that have slight value, in which they took much pleasure. (laughs) They remained so much of our friends that it was a marvel. I believe that they would easily be made Christians because it seemed to me that they belonged to no religion. Again, he writes later in his journal, I maintain most serene princes, writing back to the king and queen, that if they, the natives, had access to devout religious persons knowing the language, they would all turn Christian. 
And so I hope in our Lord that your highnesses will do something about it to which uh, to with much care in order to turn to the church so numerous of folk and to convert them as you have destroyed those who would not seek to confess the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Columbus, again, just to show you a few scattershot examples of his faith in his own words, one of the main islands he had discovered in the colonies he established was the island of Hispaniola. And when he arrives and discovers it, he sets up and constructs a cross there in the bay, which all entering would see that there was this cross. He was claiming land. And the reason he put the cross there, he says in his journal, was, quote, as a sign that your highnesses, the king of Spain, hold the country for yours, and principally for a sign of Jesus Christ our Lord and an honor of Christianity, end quote. You also see, we also have insight into life aboard Columbus's ship. During their voyages, we know what their everyday life was like on the ship, and the entire schedule of each day for all the shipmates was structured by their religious faith. They began their voyage before setting sail by, in 1492, every sailor, again, they were Catholic, they confessed their sins to a priest, they received absolution, and then communion, the Eucharist, and then they set sail. Columbus then set the sails in the name of Jesus Christ. And here's how one author puts it about life aboard the ship. It says, quote, Life aboard the ship settled into a routine that was designed to impress upon the seaman his need for a right relationship with God. In this age of expressions like drunk as a sailor or cuss like a sailor, we would do well to remember that the words we, we would do well to remember the words of Samuel Eliot Morrison, Dean of Columbus Scholars. Quote, in the great days of sail, before man's inventions and gadgets have given him false confidence in his power to conquer the ocean, seamen were the most religious of all workers on land or sea. The mariner's philosophy took from the 107th Psalm, which says, They that go down to the sea in ships and occupy their business in great waters, these men see the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. For at his word the stormy wind arises, which lifteth, lifteth up the winds thereof. As each day began, a young sailor, this is what life was like on Columbus's ship, a young sailor sang out, Blessed be the light of day and the holy cross we say, and the Lord of verity and the holy trinity. Blessed be the immortal soul and the Lord who keeps it whole. Blessed be the light of day and he who sends the night away. And then in good Catholic fashion, the young sailor then recited the Paternoster, the Lord's Prayer, and the Ave Maria, Song of Mary. And then he added, quote, God, give us good days, good voyage, good passage to the ship, Sir Captain and Master and good company. So let there be, let there be a good voyage, many good days. May God grant your graces, gentlemen of the afterguard and gentlemen forward. Time on the ship was measured by an hourglass that had to be turned every half hour. And as the seamen turned the hourglass, whoever would do it would sing out, Blessed be the hour our Lord was born, St. Mary who bore him and St. John who baptized him. The day closed with the unison singing of the Sal Regina, which was a hymn to merit 
a hymn to the Virgin Mary. Um, and at sunset, each sailor, including Columbus, had his own private devotions. So these were in practice in their everyday lives on ship, very religious men. Um, some of them certainly probably lost in, in, in uh, Roman Catholicism. Others of them genuine and sincere. And I believe Columbus was. And, but, you know, that's just my opinion. I may be wrong. They first set sail August 3rd, 1492, which the anniversary of just recently happened. And they first spotted land on October 12th, so a few months at sea. It's a long time. October 12th, which is Columbus Day now. Um, there were several islands they first visited, and the names which Columbus gave them also reflected his Christian vision for his expeditions. Columbus writes this in his letter to the king and queen. He says, To the first island which I found, I gave the name San Salvador. Does anybody know what San Salvador means? It means Holy Savior. And he said he did this, he named it this, in recognition of his heavenly majesty, who marvelously have given all this. So Columbus thanked Jesus, his Savior, for giving him these discoveries. Columbus claimed these islands for Christendom and for Spain, erecting a cross thereon, quote, as a token of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Columbus returned to Spain after the first voyage. He went on several, uh, four total voyages in the span of a few years. They set up colonies. Different governors were sent over. Columbus was pretty... Uh, they, he, he was a failed governor. He couldn't govern well. He was a great explorer, but he couldn't govern the colonies. And so they just said, we'll just have you exploring, and we'll send other governors. <laughs> and that was fine by him. Um, on a voyage, I think it was his third voyage. I could be wrong on that. Maybe his last one. That set sail in 1498... One author uh, writes, one historian writes this, quote, having announced that the first new land Columbus discovered on this voyage would be named after the Trinity. So Columbus said, on this voyage, the first new piece of land I see, I'll name it after the Trinity. So having announced this, Columbus considered it a sign from God when the first land he saw on this voyage took the form of three peaks lying off the coast of, does anybody know where? Venezuela. The island of the three peaks still bears the name, and does anybody know the island? Trinidad. Trinidad. That was named by Columbus and still bears the name. The island of the three peaks, named after, not the three peaks, but the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And um, behind Trinidad, he saw Venezuela. So Trinidad is an island off of the coast of Venezuela. And thus, in seeing with his eyes Venezuela, he became the first European in recorded history that we know of to see the continent of South America. He was the first one to see the continent of South America that we know of. And he called this land Gracia, the Isle of Grace. And he believed, this is a funny thing about Columbus, where he was so smart, he was like, you know how anyone who's a genius has these weird quirks and these weird theories that was like, you're a genius, why do you think this? 
Well, one of those things about Columbus was that he believed when he saw this Isle of Grace, Venezuela, which he never got to, he believed that it might be near the Garden of Eden. That's what he thought. This is, I'm reaching the Garden of Eden. Uh, when he arrived at Hispaniola, he wrote this to the king and queen. He said, Holy Scripture testifies that the Lord created the earthly paradise and planted in it the tree of life, and that a fountain issued from it, which is the source of the four chief rivers, rivers of the world. That's true. I do not find and have never found any Latin or Greek work which gives the precise terrestrial position of the earthly paradise, nor have I seen it marked by any reliable authority on any map of the world. Some pagan writers tried to show by argument that it was in the fortunate islands, which are the Canaries, St. Isidore, Bede, Strabo, the master of Historia, Scholastica, St. Ambrose, Don Scotus, and all the reliable theologians are agreed that the earthly paradise is in the east. I returned to my discussion at the land of Gracia and of the river and lake I found there, which the latter is so large that it could more correctly be called a sea than a lake, for a lake is a place where there is water, and if it is large, it is called a sea, as we speak of the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. I say that if this river does not come from the earthly paradise, then it must come from an immense land in the south about which we as yet know nothing. But I am quite convinced in my own mind that the earthly paradise is where I have said, and I rely on the arguments and authorities that I have cited above. So as you can see, Columbus was a bit off on some things. And you'll find that throughout his writing, but the fact is it's completely, it's, it's easy to laugh and scoff at that, but, and, and consider him a, a, a kook and everything. But the fact is, it's actually really understandable how he would have come to such strange or off conclusions. He was discovering these things for the first time. Um, he was going off the resources and things that he had. It's the, the things that he saw for the very first time and the natives for the first time seeing a white man in Columbus and his crew was so shocking to the world, so to both the natives and Columbus, it was amazing and shocking and, and just we can't fathom what it would be like to not know there's an entire land and civilizations that we never knew about was here and here we are and this is amazing and you know, that's going to really blow your mind in a lot of ways. It's world and life changing. And it was. Um, one of the other things I love about Columbus, which this may not be it's kind of a conspiracy theory thing, but he even believed that he found Solomon's gold mine spoken of in the scripture in the New World, which is fascinating because he's not the only explorer to think that they have found Solomon's gold mines in North America. And uh, that's just a fun bunny rabbit that, or a, a rabbit hole you should go down sometime. But anyway, let me deal with a few objections as we come to uh, the, the, uh, the home stretch of this. The main objection, of course, is that Columbus, all he cared about was gold. He just wanted to get rich. All right, there's a few things to consider to that really sim- oversimplified, lame objection. One, there's nothing wrong with wanting a little bit of gold and wanting to get wealthy and wanting to establish trade routes with the Indies and to increase the prosperity of your people and yourself. And you're, there's nothing wrong with that. So, so what if he wanted gold? Nothing wrong with that. 
Um, obviously, it can go wrong. The love of money is the root of all evil. So that's to be guarded against, but in and of itself, not a bad thing. So what? The other thing is you have to realize Columbus himself was not at the start of this a wealthy man. He became pretty wealthy, but he did not have the crew. He did not have the funds or the ships. He had to go get sponsorship. He had to get funds and loans from the king and queen of, of Spain, a king and queen of a country, to be able to fund this adventure, this endeavor. And in order to him, for himself to get profit, of course, they owned a big chunk of the profits. He had to get a, a good amount of profit so that they could make profit, so that he could not lose money on the trip, that they could not lose money. And he had to make it worth their while because if he didn't make it worth the king and queen's while then they would not give him more ship and more crew to go explore and do the things that he wanted to do. So he had to make a profit. And the other thing is, again, so what? What's wrong with getting more uh, resources for your people? But the other thing is that Columbus, by and large, himself and his demands on his crew was that they didn't just go in and steal gold. They didn't go and kill, steal, and destroy. They largely uh, received their gold through trade, and they traded things. And they definitely got the better end of the bargain, but that was because you had the natives who had never seen glass before and just thought, this is the most incredible thing we've ever seen. This is like stardust or something. And they're just trading piles of gold for glass. <laughs> uh, but... Columbus did not want to take advantage. He was like, what are you guys doing? So he would give them more than they would ask for. And he demanded his men, you're not allowed to take advantage of them just because you can. Some of them, would, some of them did, but Columbus's demands for his crews that they do not do that. And so when they did that, they violated what Columbus told them to do. The other major criticism which you can't tell a story of Columbus without this part of the story, and yet it's always told without this part of the story by, by the public schools, um, is that Columbus was a big meanie. He was a big colonizer. He destroyed the indigenous cultures by enslaving the people. So he was an enslaver. Okay, that's the worst possible sin you could ever commit is being a slave owner. All right, well, let's consider the issue of enslaving the Caribbean people. First, let me say that this accusation comes from people who have, modern historians, who have no idea what the world was like in Columbus's day. They have no idea what the Carib people were like in Columbus's day. And there are people, these historians are people who believe that they are the only moral compass for all of human history, and it's all to be interpreted in light of their own moral standards, which they have no basis for. What was Columbus's relationship with the natives really like? First, we have to note the obvious that, well, maybe it's not obvious, but Columbus did not simply arrive in Hispaniola and the Caribbean islands and just begin enslaving and fighting, capturing people. That is not at all what he did when he first arrived. He respected them. He 
wanted, as we read in one of his quotes earlier, he wanted to have a friendly relationship with them. And so he gave them gifts, red hats, you know, that they were so tickled by. Um, so he didn't just show up and guns a-blazing begin to enslave people. Remember, he was going on a trip that he thought was to the Orient. He wasn't expecting to make this stop and encounter these people. So he was not going to just enslave people. And that's not what he did. His goal was to make it to the Orient, and he wasn't expecting to find what he found. Um, he treated them kindly upon arrival, commanding his men to treat them justly. The natives, they were struck in awe at the sight of a white man that they had never seen before. I imagine that as well, you know. Columbus had seen some darker, uh, different types of people. Um, but imagine being a Caribbean native and seeing a white person for the first time. There's no internet, there's no pictures or books to know white men exist. <laughs> um, and to see that would be just like, oh, my eyes. <laughs> um, so they were in awe at them. They were amazed to see. And so they engaged in all kinds of trade with each other, amazed at the different gadgets and, and things they had. Um, like I mentioned, the, the glass, they were so amazed at, the beads. Um, but as Columbus, so that so it was friendly relationships. Columbus uh, wanted to maintain that and establish that and continue to do that. And as Columbus visited each of these different islands in the Caribbean, he began to hear stories about a certain tribe of Caribbean people. And the stories he heard at first did not believe. They were too fantastical, too evil, too dark. He heard these stories about this tribe of cannibals. And more and more disturbing stories were brought to his attention. And he began to see evidence like, wow, here's some islanders with body parts missing <laughs> and things like that. And eventually came into contact uh, with these, uh, they, were called, they were called Caribs which is where the Caribbean name comes from, which is where the word cannibal comes from. They were man-eaters. And he first didn't believe it, but he eventually his men came into contact with him. They were almost taken away to be eaten, but they were able to fight them off. And this is the group of people that Columbus fought and enslaved, was the Carib people who were the wicked and evil uh, cannibalistic tribe. This cannibalistic tribe absolutely terrorized all the other Caribbean islands and peoples of that world and time. None of the other native people groups on those islands liked the Caribs. They were terrified of them. They were terrorists to them. And that's why they would tell these stories to Columbus about these Caribs. And they would fear when they might arrive. Because you never know when all of a sudden you're going to see on the horizon that Carib ship coming to your island. You're next. And there's nothing you can do about it. And so what the Caribs would do, this cannibalistic tribe, they would go around these different islands, all these different islands, and they would spend a long time at one island. They'd enslave the people. They would pick the ones they would want to eat, and there was a certain type that they wanted to eat. And they would just stay there until they would really decrease the population down to barely anything left. Only those they didn't want to eat, they would leave and move on to the next island. It was awful, an awful terror to live in if you were on one of these islands. And it was a wickedness that needed to be stopped with force. And Columbus was the guy to do it. 
this was a group of people that he enslaved. And the fact that he enslaved them instead of just slaughtering them all in battle is pretty merciful because I think he would be justified to fight and kill them all in battle because of their wicked crimes and, uh, and uh, their murderous, uh, dehumanistic ways, evil ways. Um, and so that was, it wasn't just any of the natives that Columbus went and took advantage of and enslaved. Quite the opposite. It was the evil, wicked, murderous, cannibal tribe that he did this to. And the other natives were grateful to him. They were like, you're our savior, white man. And uh, thank you. You're truly a god. You have saved us from these cannibals. That was the attitude. They thanked him and loved. So Columbus was a hero for this. This is truly a heroic thing. And yet merciful, like I said, he didn't just kill them all. He enslaved them because in his mind, one, it was very normal in the world at the time to, if you won battle, enslave the losing fighters. That was very normal in the battle with the Turks and the Europeans. So that was just accepted norm of the time, right or wrong. That was the accepted norm. And so that fact was there. But plus, Columbus believed that him enslaving them instead of just killing them would allow him the opportunity to train them in Christian morality. They might be converted away from their cannibalistic ways and even to the Christian faith. So even with this cannibalistic tribe, Columbus was evangelistic, I mean, honestly, um, in his endeavors. And that's really, I mean, I don't know if I could be that way if I was put in that position. I like to think so, but I, I don't know. Um, so we have to, when people make that accusation, we have to understand who it was in the context and the situation. And so therefore, I think Columbus is not only just, hey, a man of his time, but I think completely justified in the way he handled the situation. Um, having said that, when we say the word cannibal and we mention that fact, it's the idea of a cannibal is so foreign to our modern world that it's almost silly sounding. Like, oh, that's funny. People who eat people, you know, that's silly. And we forget just how vile cannibalism really is and how evil and dark it really is. It's not funny. Uh, it's not just this silly cartoon thing. It's, it is one of the darkest evils on this planet. And we, we, we ought not to forget, when we think about Columbus, uh, just fighting upon this people that he like couldn't believe the stories himself. We can't forget that these are not just, oh, silly cannibals. No, they're vile murderers who pervert even the laws of nature in their murdering and the deforming of the image of God. No respect, no reverence for the image of God and man, mutilating it and devouring it. These were not friendly people at all who just, you know, they had a different uh, taste than you did. They were not friendly. They were evil. They were dangerous. They were demonic in their paganism. In fact, just so you get a taste of this, I, I <laughs> yeah, no pun intended. <laughs> uh, I trust you can all handle this. I, I'll read a piece here. This is how one of Columbus's men, his chief physician, recorded and describes this Carib group of people. 
He says this, We inquired of the women who were prisoners of the inhabitants what sort of people these islanders were. So they come across the Carib Island. They don't find any of the, Carib, the cannibals there, but they find women enslaved, and they go and they speak with them. That's, that's what he's talking about. So they go and they inquire the women who were prisoners of the inhabitants what sort of people these islanders were. And they replied, Caribs. As soon as they, the women, learned that we abhor such kind of people because of their evil practice of eating human flesh, they felt delighted. They told us the care of men used them with such cruelty as would scarcely be believed, and that they eat the children which they bear them, only bringing up those whom they have by their native wives. Such of their male enemies as they can take away alive, they bring here to their homes to make a feast of them, And those who are killed in battle, they eat up after the fighting is over. They declare that the flesh of man is so good to eat that nothing can compare with in the world. And this is quite evident, for of the human bones we found in the houses, everything that could be gnawed had already been gnawed, so that nothing remained but what was too hard to eat. In one of the houses we found a man's neck cooking in a pot. In their wars on the inhabitants of the neighboring islands, these people captured as many of the women as they can, especially those who are young and handsome. That's how we put it, young and handsome. And keep them as body servants and concubines. And so great a number do they carry off that in 50 houses we entered, no man was found, but all were women. Of that large number of captive females, more than 20 handsome women came away voluntarily with us. When the Caribs take away boys as prisoners of war, they remove their organs, fatten them up until they grow up, and then... When they wish to make a great feast, they kill and eat them. For they say the flesh of women and youngsters is not good to eat. Three boys thus mutilated came fleeing to us when we visited the houses. These caribs are, I won't, I won't go into detail here, but that's enough. They're described as also being sodomites, all of them as well, in the horrific things they did. So, in the eyes of Columbus and his men who were from Christian lands, these men, you know, they, Columbus and his guys, they were very familiar with the Turks and the, and the Mohammedans. They were vile people. They were disgusting. They were evil and dark. The description that Columbus gives, and when we get into Cortez in a few weeks, even more so with Cortez, the, the grotesque, dark things that Cortez witnessed, he says is, without question, far, far worse than anything we ever saw from the Muslims. We don't understand how dark it was because of how much success, as bad as those places are today, how much success the gospel did have at a time and changed their ways. It was extremely dark. And so in the eyes of Columbus and his men, when you commit the atrocities, they witnessed with their own eyes when they found these people in their eyes, and I would tend to agree, you have just forfeited your freedom. You have lost the right to autonomy and self-government because you've demonstrated you cannot practice self-government. You cannot be a free man and do those things. And so I believe Columbus was justified in enslaving them and would have been justified in killing them in battle if that's what it came down to. Finally, Columbus returned to Spain from his last voyage in November of 1504, so a short career and yet a healthy one. He saw lots of, thing, lots of things in 10, 12-year span. 
He returned from his last voyage. He was very ill with lots of different things. It was an illness that dragged on for two years. He set his affairs in order. He knew he was dying. And on May 20th, 1506, surrounded by some of his most loyal captains, by his brother Diego, by his sons, Diego and Ferdinand, whom he named after the king he loved, he received the Lord's Supper and the last rites. And then he passed away. And here's why I think he was not just a lost Roman Catholic, but a true, sincere believer. His last words being, Into thy hand, Lord, I commit my spirit. Then cry out to Mary in his last hours. But he repeated the words of Jesus, committing his spirit to his Lord. And he was buried in Seville in Spain, and King Ferdinand... Queen Isabella had died before this, but King Ferdinand had an epitaph placed on his tomb which read, To Castile and Leon, Columbus gave a new world. Ironic being that Columbus still thought he was right there, one more island he could reach the Orient. He didn't even know what he gave to Spain and to Europe and to the world and to Christendom. In the Western Hemisphere, even in this, to this day, which we revile him, of course, some of these are being overturned and renamed, but more, more cities, parks, rivers, landmarks are named after Columbus than any other person ever. And um, I would hate to see, as they like to tip the statues and rename schools and things like that, I don't want to see that happen. I, I don't want to see Columbus forgotten and uh, lied about in history. And so I want to protect his honor. Columbus certainly had his flaws and sins, things I've not mentioned today, which are plenty out there for you to go read and hear from other people who are happy to say it. (laughs) Yet he was a man of great skill, great ability. He studied God's word and he believed it. He rightly believed the Christian faith and European Christendom was better than pagan cannibalism, okay? And so he forced it. (laughs) He said, no more cannibalism here. Uh, Western Christendom is better than this, and let's make it happen. And God used him to spread the gospel and largely eradicate cannibalism in the Caribbean. And that's an amazing historical feat in and of itself. Columbus being the Christ bearer, bringing the Christ gospel to the new world, eradicated Cannibalism in the Caribbeans, uh, by and large. God used him to do this. And I haven't even spent time explaining just how incredible the feat of sailing across the Atlantic was at the time. That was an amazing thing. Incredible feat of strength and willpower and ability in and of itself. Many dangers they faced. Many stories we could tell for hours on end of the dangers Columbus faced just at sea in the sea battles and the things like that and the conflict in the crews and all those things. And, all, and, and through all those, Columbus handled himself with dignity and, and Christian honor. And he tried to instill that in his men. But just know, without going into all those stories, that it was an incredible feat and that it took... The, the right guy to accomplish what he accomplished at the right time. It took 
Columbus. It took a guy who truly believed that he was the Christ bearer with this calling and conviction that God has called him to do what he was called to do. It's amazing. His life was in danger so many times. He could have died at sea. He could have died at the hand of natives, at the hand of his own crew. Many different things could have threatened to take his life and did threaten to take his life. Lost at sea, lost in adventure. But the Lord saw fit to bring him back home and to die there in his homeland, to be buried and to be honored. And so, in considering Columbus and his legacy, I'll leave you with this Last thought from one certain Christian historian. He says this, rather, with a, I can see him saying this with a smirk on his face. So he says, It is objected Columbus forced Christianity and Western culture on the Native Americans. Answer, this is true. And millions of people are in heaven today as a result. And that is a fact of history that we have to consider and deal with. Yeah, Columbus did some things. He used some force. And you know what? Millions of people are saved and in heaven today because of it. So, like Christopher, may we see it as our life mission to bear Christ across the sea, to bring Christ to the nations. All right, let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for this time together. We give you thanks for what you've done for Columbus and his legacy. May we learn the good things to learn from him, consider the lessons, and may you protect truly his legacy and his story in the years and ages to come that he might not be forgotten, but that he might continue to encourage Christians for ages to come. In your name we pray, amen.